Hello, welcome to Asia Tech Podcast, voice of the Asian tech ecosystem. We are Graham Brown and Michael Waits. And if you're a listener on iTunes, a subscriber, you know we talk about a wide range of subjects related to the Asian tech ecosystem. Everything from real estate to Chinese tourism. And by the way, if you're not a subscriber yet, head on head on over to our website, asiatechpodcast.com and click the subscribe to iTunes button. And you get all that content for free. Every episode is a different take on an Asian tech trend. Today is no different. To, so, to share with us the latest and greatest from the Asian tech ecosystem, here's Michael Waits. Graham, how are you? I'm really good. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing really well, actually. Today was like an insanely busy day. And I feel kind of fired up. So, if I like go off the rails a little bit. <laughs> we'll rein you in. Please bring Just me back. wind the guy up and let him go. He's <laughs> ready. Bring me back onto the rails. Michael is um, ready. Into the ring. So, so one of the se- you know people always ask me what are the sectors that interest you. I spent so much time, literally, I spent almost all day Sunday um, mentoring and advising a startup on how to raise money. And I spent so much time talking to individual startups, and the ones that are really starting to interest me, at least this over the past week, were two startups in the human resources space and both of which I know really well and they're both taking a different tack or tact I guess is the right way to pronounce this on how to develop the human resources space in a way that hasn't really been approached before and and I think you know we talk about this every week but tech kind of allows you to do this in a way that you couldn't have done before because of the way it brings so many different resources together and allows you to hit so many different points at the same time I want to back up a little bit and talk about a company that's really near and dear to my heart, and that's Seek.com. Hmm. Seek is a very old company, but one of the first online, and it's probably the, one of the largest in the world, online sort of job boards. Started by two guys in Melbourne, Australia, of all places, back when a lot of really interesting companies were coming out of Australia, including a company called Sausage Software, which you know everybody who's listening, go do some work on it. Real company, listed at one point, was one t- at one point um, a billion-dollar company. And they were basically building tools, I believe, to build websites. We can go back and figure out what that was. But anyway, so Seek was started in 1998. And their idea was to sort of automate the hiring process, you know, kind of like an online resume. And the reason why I bring it up, because over the past sort of 18 to 20 years, and this company listed in Australia in 2005 at about a half a billion dollar valuation. But since the time that Seek was founded and Monster.com was founded and other companies like that, Frankly, outside of a few companies in the United States, um, not a lot has changed. Mm. In other words, the, the take on how to hire people is really based on now human resources professionals going to online job boards, either listing there or looking there for people that have posted their online resumes. You're just starting to see both in the United States through a company called Hired.com and, and now in Southeast Asia – Companies trying to iterate or to really go to like Web 3.0 or Human Resources Online 3.0 to try to change the way um, this is working. And what's really interesting, just to get a sense for how big that market is, in 2013, I believe, or 2013, yeah, Seek.com went out and bought the other 75% of a company started in Malaysia called Jobstreet.com that they hadn't already purchased and they bought that for $570 million. So valuing Job Street, which again had been online for quite some time and really was very similar to Seek, 
in kind of its scope and mission. That was, you know, if you're Unilever, you post a job online, and if somebody, if you're somebody who wants to work at Unilever, structure your online resume so that they can find it, and um, hopefully the two sides will meet. And you know, LinkedIn kind of does some of that as well. But again, LinkedIn hasn't really changed in years as well, and most people find. And you'll hear me say this a lot, that there's more noise there than signals in kind of all these places. Mm. And recently, I don't know what your experience has been, but a lot of the sort of connection requests that I get on LinkedIn are from human resources professionals. And, you know, five years ago or seven years ago, I used to think, oh, they must be interested in hiring me because I work at this company or that company and my online you know, portfolio of jobs must look okay. But I'm not doing that anymore, and I still get them. And I finally realized it didn't take me that long that all they really wanted to do was connect to me so they could see my connections right? Exactly. and contact them. Because the gravitas that I had built up over time meant that if they were my friend, that other people would befriend them. And I had some guy do that to me once. I'm a little off the track already. Um, and he was trying to sell real estate to my friends, and they actually called me and said, do you know this guy, Bill? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> anyway, so what, what are some of the different takes that, are, that people are taking on this? You can see, though, right? If you look at seek.com, which is, again, a billion-dollar company, Job Street, you know, find your job, all these companies, even LinkedIn, they don't really do anything new or innovative. Okay? Mm. Now, what's the biggest problem? So what's the hottest thing going on in the world right now? It's people are moving away from big corporations, and they're either working at or starting their own companies. And those companies, like one of the biggest um, sectors in which those companies need to hire are tech, what I'll call tech talent. Okay, so two things are changing really. Is, you know, back when I was in high school and college, if you were a programmer, you were a geek and like nobody wanted to talk to you, you probably didn't get paid that much money. And now you're a rock star and you get paid a fortune and you can jump jobs whenever you want. So finding and maintaining tech talent is really difficult. And, you know, there had been nothing online, particularly in Southeast Asia, to help that happen. And, you know, full disclosure, I was literally at the founding of a company that does this called GetLinks. And their take on this is completely different. And that is they work directly with the companies to point, and they curate the people that are, that are allowed to post their talent on their site. And they do one other thing that's actually reversed from what the rest of the market does. The tech talents themselves don't necessarily apply for jobs. The companies apply to the tech talent. Right. So this is a, this is a flip the model around yeah, business. Right. So in the old days, and just think about it, you can ask questions about it, right? But in the old days, I would go out and apply to five companies. All of them would look at my resume without knowing that I was applying to five other companies or which other companies to which I was applying. And there was no kind of bidding on me. I would have to go to them and say, in my current job, I make $100,000. I won't work for less than 145 with you if you're interested in hiring me. And if I had another, an, another job offer, I could then say, well, company Z is offering me you know, 140, and if you beat that by a little bit, I'll come work for you. Otherwise, I'll stay at my existing job. Mm. But this company's completely flipped the bid. And what they've said is, you know, post where you're working now um, and we'll get five companies to bid on you. Right. So you, you fully disclose like what your skills are, what you've been working on and stuff like that. And what's ended up happening is you have a reverse market in these things. And what it's doing is it's moving the power. It's shifting the power from companies to hire 
and corporates are actually participating in this, so not just startups, right? Larger companies are participating in this and need tech talent, and they're saying, okay, we know you're in demand because we can see that other companies are bidding on you. And now what, what ends up happening is tech talents end up with like two or three job offers and the companies are bidding in reverse on them. Hmm. This is a very interesting business model for me. And here's a company that operates in like five or six different countries in Southeast Asia and they're completely changing the way um, tech talent gets recruited and gets hired in Southeast Asia. Now, there's more to this as well, and this is where things get really different, right? So think about, again, one of the things that the modern internet provides us, and that is it creates a frictionless um, environment. How so? Well, let's say you're a kick-butt developer, like a UI or UX developer, and you're from Cambodia, but you're just amazing, right? You live in a country with a small population, and the bids for your services in your own country are lower than they might be somewhere else. So there's also a job search arbitrage going on. Mm. But what the internet allows you to do is it allows you to sit in Vietnam and tell people that you're the best UX designer in the world or sit in Cambodia and do that and get hired to work anywhere in the region in one of the higher sort of paying countries like Singapore, which needs tons of tech talent and is happy to give people that are employed there a pass to stay there because those people then rent apartments and help contribute to the growth of the economy. So we're getting these these um, these types of tech talents into the system and they're doing sort of job hopping arbitrage, which is a very which is a very new thing. Right. So just back up a bit. What was what do you? I mean, if we would look at the old model, Michael. I mean, even that's sort of you know LinkedIn territory, even though it's a kind of a new player in that. What was broken in that whole model that, you know, why did it stay broken for so long? I mean, there, there really has been so little innovation in that whole recruitment process in the last 10, 20 years. And that's how long we've been on the internet, right? So yep. what was broken and why did it stay broken for so long? So here's the thing. LinkedIn at, at no point and even today was not doing curation. So they weren't curating your profile. And I actually had multiple occasions where I had perfectly valid looking people um, try to connect to me and let's just say their background was <clears throat> they were a senior manager in the loan department at HSBC in Dubai. Right. And let's say their profile had a picture on it and it listed where they went to university which was Cambridge, I'm just making it up, and that they had gone to high school on an AFS program and studied in Indiana. What, some, what people were doing was they were actually going out, downloading that picture, which you can easily do, right? You right-click, you download, you save it to your desktop. They were going out and recreating that profile right. with some slightly different details, but details that could be verified on the rest of the internet, right? So you could type in, mm -hmm. you know, Michael Waits and see that Michael worked at Goldman Sachs or worked at, um, at Morgan Stanley and went to Connecticut College. And then the person who sent you the thing would send you an email saying, please check my LinkedIn profile. You'd click on it and it went to a profile on LinkedIn and they'd ask you questions and they'd fish, right? Yeah, but it right. wasn't actually them. None of, none of the stuff on there was curated. So at some point you lose a little bit of trust. And I think the biggest thing that was broken, okay, was that um, one, there was no curation and two, there was so much noise on the job side as well. So you would apply to a job and it was almost like looking for an apartment. 
it was really just lead gen for headhunters. Mm, right. Right. So the lead gen business, I completely understand. I don't like it. It might be great for money making, but it doesn't necessarily help anybody else's life except the person trying to generate that lead. Okay. So that those are the two biggest things that were broken is that in the end, a certain percentage, and I would put it in the sort of 40 to 50% range of the jobs that were listed were just a way to kind of fetch people to get their information, to generate a lead. Mm. And then try to go sell that. And it's not a very effective way to get a job. And I think what these new businesses are trying to do is actually trying to match a real job to a real person. And if you look at some of the statistics around it, I think if you look at the number of jobs that are filled versus the number of jobs that are posted on a place like Job Street, you're probably talking in the low double digits. But the, you're talking about very high double digits, 40, 50, 60% of jobs get posted on a place that's curated, right? So particularly for one of these companies, you've got something that's highly curated, very targeted on a sector basis, so you know that business inside and out, right? Whereas a place like JobTree was just general. You could have posted a job for 7-Eleven, right? Or a, or a job for a senior you know, web developer at Goldman Sachs and, and everything in between, if, if, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But on some of these new businesses, it's human resources, or human resources or hiring just for one sector. And that makes it really targeted and really powerful. And you see like real jobs for real people and real hiring taking place. The other thing is that even for a place like LinkedIn, like LinkedIn where people were nominally making recommendations, Right. One of the things that LinkedIn did was they automated that process. So when you logged into LinkedIn, it would say, you know, Ben has recommended you for startups. Why don't you recommend Ben for investments? Hmm. Now, you might know Ben really well. You might just know him partially, but you might just want to click on that thing to get it off your screen. Right, right. Are they still right, doing I mean, that? They seem to have, yeah. I don't know. I haven't seen that in the last few weeks that I've logged on. I don't know if it's because I've disabled that function or... I didn't see really see how that could work. I mean, it sort of tries to overcome that whole that whole issue of curation, but it kind of backfired, right? Yeah, because I had people uh, recommending me or saying that I was good at something that they would have no way of knowing whether I was good at. Right. None, because they didn't know me well enough. And I know that LinkedIn was just automating it. And to be fair, anybody that was using that service, whether it was LinkedIn or Job Street or whatever, they knew the game anyway. So those types of services really pander to the lowest common denominator and I'm a big disbeliever in lowest common denominator which you'll see later when we talk about um, oh that's a big surprise which I like to do um, at the end of the show but let's talk about a, let's, let's talk about another take on this right so what's the other massive thing changing in the world of jobs well let's think about our parents or even to a certain extent our grandparents right they would get a job at IBM or General Motors, they'd work there for 25 years, and then maybe they'd go to one other place and then they'd retire, right? And there was this great line on a television show from the 80s or maybe it was the early 90s, I can't remember in the United States, it was probably the 80s, right? There was a TV show called The Wonder Years. Oh, and there, yeah. was this, there was this kid on it, Kevin, right? Yeah. And his dad went to some generic you know, conglomerate and had a desk job, hmm. okay? You know, and it was a typical family where he'd come home at 7 o'clock at night or 6 o'clock at night, the mother would make dinner, and the kids would sit around the table and talk about school, and the father would grumble about how crappy it was going to work every day. 
And one day Kevin went to the office with him. Maybe it was like bring your Sunday or a kid's day at work or who knows, right? And Kevin walks into his, dad, his dad's office and he looks at maybe the little sign on his dad's desk that says his father's name and like what his title is. And it said, you know, Mr. Whomever, it said head of like purchasing and something. I can't remember what it was. And Kevin looked up at his dad and said something like, hey, dad, when did you decide you wanted to be like the head of purchasing in this? <laughs> in your life, did you make that decision and like focus on doing that? You know, it was a seminal moment in the show because the, clearly the guy had never decided that. That was just like he got hired by the company, right. they put in that role, and he just did it, you know, <clears throat> under duress for the rest of his life. But millennials have decided that they don't want to work like that anymore. Yeah. But human resources, not just in this region, but globally, are set up to do that. Hire you to work at a company, try to keep you in that company by like putting a gym in the company or putting a Starbucks in the company, trying to keep you happy, having childcare and all these other things around keeping you happy. Um, and yet a normal millennial today will say, you know what? My cousin went to Vietnam for the summer and really loved it there. I think I want to spend the next six months writing code in Vietnam. Right. Even if the company for whom I'm working, again, nominally, is in Silicon Valley. Hmm. And they'll go do that. And then after, you know, maybe they overstay for a while and they stay there for a year. And then they say, I want to go to Budapest and see what it's like to live there. Or I love to ski. So I'm going to go to Switzerland for the winter, get a job there, not as a ski instructor, but as a programmer. Right, this whole concept of um, digital nomads is is real, and I see it every day, particularly right. in this region, right? Because the weather's so nice, so people come here to work, they kick butt, and then maybe they go to a different part of the country, whether they go to Phuket or go to Ho Chi Minh or they go to Jakarta or somewhere just to try stuff out. So people are now starting to build a company around this idea of how can I connect people with a job or employment that dovetails with things that they really care about. Hmm. Right, so it's very different than it was before where you take a job for the money and then you take the two or three weeks vacation that you got and that would facilitate the rest of your life. There's a company here called Social Sea. I have no interest here at all. Um, <clears throat> but the people that run this company have been running another company in China, they're French, for the past 10 years. And the idea is how can I find people with common interests? They want to do things, they want to make money, but they also want to do good things. And how can I connect them to employment like that, right? And that's why it's called social C. And there's social capital around doing that. So in a way, like on Facebook, you can click like, right? And in other sites, you can actually write recommendations or, or negative recommendations, right? Like I worked with Michael and he was horrible. You control people. So on this, on, in this idea for this company, social C, the idea is you may not have liked working with Bill, but you don't get a chance to say that. But Bill's social score can be higher or lower just depending on the amount of people that actually did like to work with him. And the implication, if he doesn't have a high score, is that there must have been a bunch of people out there who wouldn't have like voted yes necessarily. Mm. So, but the idea is that there's social capital around hiring. But in the same way that we used to get paid when I was at Goldman Sachs, if I recommended somebody to the firm and that person got hired, I was paid a, an amount of money. I forget what it was. Maybe it was $5,000. I can't remember. But this company is taking that process of socializing the hiring process and the human resources process and putting it online and empowering people to do work that like does good 
even at big companies and um, allows them to also get paid for that. So again, a completely different take on how people get jobs, what types of jobs they're trying to get, and how companies can find people where their um, interests are aligned. This is one of the big words that this company likes to use, is alignment. Mm-hmm. Right? And let's go back to where we started this conversation with Seek.com and Job Street and LinkedIn. The LinkedIn platform does not care from a social perspective whether your interests or your desire to do good is aligned with your employer. But what employers are starting to find is that if you can hire somebody whose interests are aligned with yours, right? And this this basically blows this whole corporate social CSR thing out of the water, because this whole concept of like corporate social responsibility is now overtaking entire companies, and they're saying we just need to hire people that have interest in being here. Whether it's maybe some people are really into like the razor blade business that's in Germany. But let's really hire people to do to, to work there that are really interested in, in, in that type of thing and who are interested in helping make that business like more socially better. And that's the that's the founding concept of this particular company. And in that sense, I think it's really interesting and a really different take. And again, it, it also allows you to say where you want to work and gives workers more flexibility in sort of time, type of job length of stay at any particular job and location in a way that wasn't possible before. So I find that really interesting as well. A very different model from what you've seen up until now. I see it a lot with the the younger people that I've seen sort of on the road. And I know you talk about Thailand as a hotspot. I spent a bit of time up in Chiang Mai, which is really like, you know, the epicenter for all these digital nomads in the world, really. Mm. Yes, yes. And I mean, I'm 44, so I'm sort of not in that millennial bracket. But if I was to go down 10, 15 years and see the top end of those millennials, what's really interesting is that their values are slightly different. They're shifting and they sort of see things in a, not in, a, in the way that we were sort of raised to view, you know, companies as a sort of a, a, a vehicle to, you know, from from the moment that you were you recruited to the moment you retire, this was sort of your life mapped out. I mean, that's sort of right. you know, that's that's gone now, right? But yes. the, the way they're approaching things is very much with that sort of project mindset, isn't it? Is that yes. they go yes. into businesses as projects, like I'm going to yes. work here, I'm going to get this experience, I'm going to go to the next one, and there's no sort of shame about it. Whereas, sort of no. my generation, no. there's a little bit of shame with that sort of attitude that you were. There's a word for it: job, job hopping. You're a job right, hopping. job hopping. Yeah, you're mercenary, right? It's kind yeah. of like. Oh. It's a negative thing, but for them, they're just sure. gathering experiences and, you know, they're gathering, th- you know, they want to work on this project because the project looks interesting. You know, I'll work on this bit of code because they're building this and I can and do And I do this. that really well and I can do that better than anybody else. We used to see this at UBS, sorry to interrupt you, all the time. We'd get a resume for a super great candidate for the tech team and somebody would look at it and go, mm, he's already worked at Morgan Stanley, Maryland, Citigroup and JP Morgan. He's a job hopper. Well, I don't right. want to hire him. That's, Sorry, that's, that's, that's the sort of attitude. I mean, I had that attitude it when is. I was building a company. I look at somebody's resume and I think six months here, seven months here, 13 months here. I don't want this guy. But, you know, if I had sort of come from their background, maybe I would have seen it differently, right? I, exactly. sort of, I had that old school corporate mindset, which is like, you're a risk, right? right. Yeah, I'm not going to invest in you and train you and then you to go, you know, take a hike and take all your skills to the next guy, right? Right. And that's something that this company Social C is facilitating. It's that ability to say, 
I want to I want to work on this project, and when that project's done, maybe I jump to the next project, or maybe I take two months off. You know, maybe I go do my own startup, or maybe I use that six months as a living, breathing application mm. for a full-time job at another company that I love, because I can actually now post that project onto my profile, I've done this, and the people with whom I worked can now say, I kicked ass on this. Right. And now I'm so much more in demand, and people actually use both platforms, right? They'll be on Social C, but they'll put their stuff in to get links, and then they'll get multiple bids for their business. It's a very interesting way to find employment, mm. actually. I think we're starting to see this with, I mean, startups are built around this model already, right? They expect it and they're, they're flexible enough to take this on. But now we're starting to see that happening in the corporate world. It's going to be really interesting, isn't it? I mean, that's the only way they can. I mean, you said earlier is to hire and maintain talent. And I think the maintaining talent is the key part, isn't it? It's, that's where the, the, the real cost and the risk is for these businesses. You know, if they can't, you know, they can have the, the slide and the all the sort of the fancy what you know the toys in the office but at the end of the day if they're not providing them with interesting projects to work on that align with their sort of social and life goals then they're not going to keep these guys around for long are they no because in the end those things don't really matter to anybody and again that's part of the thing with alignment right that doesn't matter and once every every company starts to offer it it just becomes a commodity you can find that thing anywhere and then you realize as well as an employee that that stuff is there only really to keep you around longer. Yeah, right. <laughs> on a daily basis, but also on an annual basis, is really just to keep you locked into the office or locked into that job. I actually had, I'll never forget this either, but I actually had a senior guy from New York come out and give a group dinner once. And he said to me, I love when I see my the people that report to me get married, have children, or buy a house. I didn't understand it at first. I was sitting next to him at dinner one night and I just looked at him and somebody on the other side said, why? Like, why would you care? He said, because as soon as they do that, they have leverage in their life. And the more leverage they have, the less likely they are to leave their job because the more likely it is that they need the income to support their kid, you know, their spouse, pay their mortgage or like finance their boat. So none of the stuff was being done to like keep people happy. It was really just yeah. being done to keep to keep, keep people locked in, keep people right. locked in. But again, I think this this type of employment is expanding. It's expanding regionally, right? And we we talk a lot about the connectivity between sort of not just this regional economy, but the relationship that Japan has to what's going on in Thailand and the rest of Southeast Asia. And we'll say it often, but you know the Japanese still remain the largest FDI or foreign direct investors in Thailand. Hmm. And I don't think that's going to end anytime soon. Like from your perspective, I know there are Japanese companies in the human resources space that are looking for partnerships in Southeast Asia because as their market saturates, right, even if they're an online company, as their market saturates, they need to have another market where they can use their services and their skills. And in the end, because so many Japanese companies are here and you see a lot of Japanese um I'll say youngsters, but even people in the mid part of their career looking to find a job in Thailand and the rest of Southeast Asia, they're going to use those platforms because it's in Japanese to try to find a job out here. And the only way to do that is to partner with some of the companies that are getting built now. And that continues to be really interesting. I mean, I wonder if you see any of that from your perspective sitting in Japan. Yeah, I see it with a lot of the younger companies, the startups, that they it tends to be the first hopping off point into Asia. 
it's not necessarily Singapore, which or, or Hong Kong, or maybe even Shanghai, Beijing, but they seem to be going to places like Bangkok, Thailand, mm -hmm. and building out teams there. I've seen it with startups. As I say, it's the younger startups. It tends to be, you know, I mean, Japanese are very sort of cautious about going overseas generally. But when they do, and when they go to Asia, Thailand is the first stopping point for them. And that's, you know, I've seen, you know, with companies setting up offices in Thailand, it seems to be well within their comfort zone. So I think we're going to see more of it because, you know, the more case studies out there of successes of people who have managed to do it, then the more people are going to follow. It tends to be the case that Japanese people, Japanese companies like examples. If there's an example out there, they'll follow it. So if somebody can go and set up a business and make it work in Thailand, they'll follow it. But they don't want to be the first guy to do it, right? Right. So we're kind of at that stage where there just needs to be a few really strong examples to feed back into the startup scene here in Japan. And you've got to, you've got to remember the startup scene here in Japan is years behind West Coast America, you know, in terms of where we are, right? So, we so just... even, with, even with all the capital there, you still think it's all the capital, right? All the money in the postal savings, all the capital that's looking for yield. Yeah. You'd think that they'd try to invest in what I call, like to call alternative investments, but you're not, you're not seeing that. Well, I see what, what I see here from Japan, I mean, from the grassroots level, is that when I go, I go to startup events here and I'm like the only guy in a pair of jeans, right? Really? I, I'm, something's wrong here, right? Why is that I'm the only guy here in a pair of jeans at a startup event and every guy at the startup event, and they tend to be those kind of what they call in Japan, daikigyo, naikigyo, which is sort of like um, innovation within the enterprise type startup. So, you right. know, corporate, they had, corporate innovation. Yeah. yeah, they have the corporate entrepreneurship, you know, where they'll sort of, they'll mentor the startups within their, their internal incubator. So I go to these events and everybody's there in suits and ties. And I'm thinking there's something not right here. And, you know, that's kind of like, you know, they like the thing about startups and they like this all, you know, all the, the, the language that goes with it, but there's that sort of fundamental cultural barrier, but it's that, you know, what they'd call katai, you know, stiff, that hierarchy, which I yeah. guess, you know, you read it. I mean, I've got a copy of the lean startup here by Eric Reese. I wonder what he would have to say about all of that, but you know, it's kind of like, it's the culture, isn't it? And that's why I think those sort of, you know, those, those investments tend to be top down. So we're sort of, it's a, it's a leading, you know, it's a trailing investment, if you like, in terms of the curve, they tend to be top down. I mean, one thing we were just discussing before this call was about this government initiative to get Japanese companies to go to Thailand, you know, and invest. And there's huge numbers. I mean, there's like, you know, 280 SMEs from Aichi Prefecture alone going to Thailand and setting up factories. But the interesting right. if thing... It's, if, it's, if it's IG, right, it's got to be cars or some right. kind of car. Auto, right, yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, that, that low-level small automation and all the bits and parts that go into the big sort of Toyota factories and so on. Right, but right, it's right. always government-led, you know. And that's the thing with Japan investment. I mean, you've worked here longer than I have. It's, you know, it always has to be top-down government-led. So It really does. When it comes to going back to those guys out in Chiang Mai and, and, you know, the small startups in Bangkok, that seems to be off the radar. But I think we're seeing slow, you know, slow ev evidence of small startups moving out to Asia. And I think that's a, always a positive thing because that will then ping back to Japan and give people confidence that they can do it. Yeah, and I think that's also going to impact the ability for those Japanese companies that are in the hiring business, right? They're probably more in the Web 2.0 space rather than super innovative. But... <clears throat> 
what some of those companies have done is they've actually hitched their wagons directly to Japanese companies in Japan. Hmm. And they've said, well, if you move to another country, we'll move with you. And when they try to do that, they stumble because their ability to, again, hiring, right? Their ability to hire the tech talent here that can help them grow those businesses is limited. And the companies here are trying to take advantage of that by partnering with those companies to make sure that that actually ends up um, being a possibility and, and a, more highly likely for those Japanese companies as well. It's neat. And then you see some kind of cross-pollination on the investment side too. Mm. I just continue to like the way Japanese businesses invest in Thailand in particular. I mean, every as you were saying, every car company in Japan has a manufacturing base in Thailand. Every single one of them. And if you remember, it's a while ago now, but if you remember the floods in 2011 in Thailand, the same year as the earthquake in Japan, yeah, almost the entire supply chain, it got hit twice, right? Once because rail lines and connectivity and roads and stuff in Japan were hurt, but all of the factories in Thailand where there were floods completely impacted the supply chain. When I was leaving Japan at the end of 2011, I wanted to buy a Nikon camera and a Nikon lens, and I actually had to wait until I got to Thailand to buy the lens because that's where a lot of the lenses were made. Right, exactly. I think you'd be surprised, wouldn't you, as a visitor to Thailand, how Japanese it is in many places, especially in places like Bangkok, you know, I mean, it's got family mart and you've got, it's so familiar as well. I think I've been reading the stats the other day, Bangkok, Bangkok is the fourth biggest city outside of Tokyo. I mean, sorry, outside of Japan with Japanese expats after LA, somewhere else in US and somewhere else. Right. So it's sort of, I think fourth in the world. You know, it's got a large expat community. And there's also, interestingly, one, a large one up in Chiang Mai, which you wouldn't have sort of thought would be the case. But there you go. I mean, it has the, I mean, that's, that's the key, isn't it? It has that sort of infrastructure, the culture infrastructure as well. <laughs> you know, you, you just walk around, you see a family mart, sushi restaurants, and what else? You know, everything's going on. It's, it's very Japanese in many there's a There's a Japanese school in Bangkok that has 3,000 students in it. Wow. And those are just the kids that go to regular, like, Mombusho-sponsored Japanese style school that doesn't include all the kids that go to ISB, Patana, um, NIST and all the other, you know, Bangkok prep and all the other sort of international schools here. And there are tons of those. So you walk down, we talk about it. You walk down Soy 24, close your eyes. All you hear is Japanese being spoken. That's interesting. isn't it? It's pretty amazing. I've been to so many, I mean, obviously my wife's Japanese and we've been to so many places in the world looking at international schools. We've always checked out the, the Japanese ones. It tends to be the case, Michael. I don't know if you found this. Like some countries, you go to these schools and the Japanese schools in particular, the they all seem to be dying off. You know, it's like, oh, we, you know, in this grade, we've got this many students. But this year, there's half that many students. And next year, there's going to be half that many again. They're always trying to put a brave face on it. <laughs> Because you realise all the the expats have just up to left, right? In many countries, I mean, like in the UK or in Spain or these kind of countries, that expat community, or you know, those people that were sent across with the the Japanese auto companies and so on, seem to be disappearing. But in Bangkok, you say there's a pretty healthy community, right? So it's never ending. I mean, we'll say it many times, but something like twenty five percent of the rental turnover in the central part of Bangkok is Japanese. There's a, there's a Fuji supermarket, okay, on Soy right. 49, which won't mean much to most people. But if you walk into that supermarket, again, when I first moved here, I started taking pictures in there, and I just posted on my Facebook page, where am I? 
Yeah. You know, and people just wrote back like Osaka because they knew I wasn't in Tokyo <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, or Nagasaki or somewhere in Japan, but it wasn't because everybody in there is Japanese. All the signs are in Japanese. The announcements are in Japanese and it just looks like a Japanese supermarket. It's really insane. But again, that impacts all of the things that go on here from a hiring perspective, from a human resources perspective. And it all comes back to how people are coming up with ways to, um, to change that and also continue that relationship between the companies in Japan that need to hire for Japanese companies mm. in Bangkok. I'm seeing Japanese companies as well hiring from Southeast Asia. And yeah. I've got a friend here who's running a program where they're hiring uh, Malaysian developers and bringing them across to Japan. And the biggest problem with that, the challenge isn't finding them, the challenge is keeping them because they've got to train these guys to come across and, you know, assimilate them into Japanese culture. And, you know, when you get large groups of them, it can be a challenge, right? What's the biggest challenge, you think? Well, I think the biggest challenge is that if you, if you were to imagine bringing a, a bunch of 10 Malaysian guys and they always, always guys, developers coming across and they live together and they, you know, they, they have a bit of a community, but at the same time, because they're all together, they don't then assimilate into the, the outside world in Japan. And it tends to be a little bit of a bubble. So right. they'll stay for a while, but they won't stay long term. And that's a, a real challenge because they then go into the offices, into the Japanese offices, and there's like 10 developers and 100 Japanese staff. And right. there's, there's no integration. So that's the challenge. It, it Not finding these guys, but integrating and keeping these guys is a real challenge for these Japanese companies. Yeah, it must be. I mean, look, anytime you live in a bubble, right? It's almost like there are people here that do that as well. They'll live out in a town that's gated and it's all sort of non-Thai. Hmm. They're not really living in Thailand per se. And if what you're saying is the same, it's like these, these teams, whether they're from Malaysia or Indonesia or Vietnam, when they come to Japan, if they're all living together, it's almost like they're not in Japan. Right. And it's never good for retention, right? Yeah. That is the challenge. I mean, how do you deal with that? I mean, either you've got to split these guys up and recruit them in ones and twos, which is maybe logistically a problem, but ultimately really they would hard. integrate better, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And then you have the problem with the Japanese company because they're recruiting into corporates as well rather than startups, which may be the key, right? You know, they're recruiting into corporates where it's very rigid and, you know, they are not used to ultimately, a, you know, a group of foreign workers. In their no, and also, and also the outward, the sort of outward projected image of Japan as a place that's, like creative and technologically superior and all these things that right. you see sort of in the sort of in the media when you get to Japan you find out let's just say they're not exactly like that right i mean this is a country that still uses faxes michael i mean <laughs> i know <laughs> where on earth in the world and it's only because they make them here but where on earth in the world do they still use fax in the office it... no i sometimes see people's business cards with fax numbers on them <laughs> and i just ask them like really they're like, well, I mean, I, we have one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe we'll use it. Unbelievable. Um, look, last week we ended on a, it's a big surprise. All right, what are we talking we about to, today? We talked about a company, you know, I'll go back to it again, Happy Fresh, just in case anybody wants to follow <laughs> up with it, like why it was funded, what it really mattered. You know, we went back and said, like, nobody really remembered the fact that there was WebVan. I want to do a little bit again on what I like to call, oh, that's a surprise. Right. It's not going to be happy fresh again. You're going to give these guys a break. <laughs> I, could, I could do that again. But no, no, it's unfair. 
as happy and as fresh as that would make me feel, I don't think I'd like to do All that right. again this week. I think we covered it enough last week. Who's on the block uh, today? Well, so my favorite venture capitalist, not just not just globally but locally, is the um, the five hundred tuk tuks. I mean, I think these guys have like. Mm. They're, they're, they're my, <laughs> did you just sigh? Oh, I did. I didn't. Because I, I know when you mentioned 500 tuk-tuks already, it's already set it up for where we're going with this. This is 500 <laughs> startups, right? Yeah. So first of all, I want to. I want to have. Yeah, I want to have a name for the local company that's not pejorative. That that's the first yeah. thing I want in every other country in the world too. Like you know, 500 kimchi. We're really doing this in Korea. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like would you call it 500 kamikazes in Japan? Yeah, you exactly. Because it's not really friendly. Anyway, I'll leave that to to um, the Thai people to argue with the people in California. But they've just announced that, and I love their announcements. Right, the 500 team is great at making announcements, particularly ones that happen outside the country. It's no big surprise to me that they made another announcement last week or this week, a few days ago, saying that it's officially closed the final dollar of its latest fund in Thailand, which is about $15.4 million, um, <laughs> which they love to do this. They said it surpasses its target of $10 million by 54%. <laughs> just in case you can't do math. <laughs> exactly, just in case the maths are really hard for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's so, a big number, 54%. It is. A, it's a gigantic percent. And, of course, they go on to say things like, you know, they like to brag not just – you'll never hear them bragging about how any of their companies are like growing any of their KPIs or their metrics. It's just like how many of them have been funded and followed on and how many companies they invested in this year because that's like that's some kind of badge of honor, right? It's like – so they'll tell you – this is the thing I love about them. They'll tell you that 84% of their companies will provide them in their financial models, right? This is what they say out loud. will provide no return to their investors, none. That's how they model it. When they go to sell to their investors, they'll say, oh, yeah, we, you know, our model says out of the 100% of the companies in which we invest, 84% of them will return you to zero or just get your money back. And so, frankly, I'm not impressed. But also, it's the number of investments they make. They, you know, it's not good enough to make 10 great investments a year. It's better to make 30 like so-so investments and then brag about how many there are mm. and then how many you've like convinced other people to fund for you as a follow-on. Remember – this is not a big Series A fund. It's more like a seed, an angel-style fund, and I do leave some money to the side for follow-on investments. But if you're running a micro fund, which is what they call themselves, there's not a lot of money there for follow-on. So essentially what they're doing is you know, they're trading around their own position. We've talked about this before, and we'll continue to do it because I don't like it at all. Um, they're trading around the fact that they invest early, convince others to invest afterwards based on their marketing prowess, and maybe even sell some of their positions to the next investors. But this is the great line from this, okay? I love this. The, one of the investment managers here, so there are two of them, don't need to be named, said 10 of the 30 companies in their portfolio have received follow-on investment mm. or are close to finalizing deals. Or, or. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the, it's a big that's a big surprise or let's do a little again let's do a little bit of math they didn't do this math for you because this math wasn't nearly as impressive as the other math so he's saying it's quite impressive percentage given that our fund is not even one and a half years old yet I don't know why that matters like how old it is mm. that 10 comes so in 18 months you funded 10 companies that's 18 months mm. Have that's they not a lot 
No, they've invested in 30, but only 10 of them have received follow-on. So that's only one-third. My, my math is pretty good in my head. But is it, is it, isn't it 10 have received follow-on funding or are close to... <laughs> yeah, so yeah. let's be generous with our math and let's say that 50% of what they're reporting is actually true, right? In a way that most advertisers will tell you. I know that 50% of my ads are working. I just don't know which 50%. Right. So I have to invest 100% of my money in ads, and I guess exactly. that's their theory here. But the point is, let's, let's just discount and take a little bit of a haircut, as we say, and say that half of what they said have actually, will actually receive final on investment. And I'll tell you why I'm saying that. In my experience, I was, and, and this is true from just last week, I have a guy starting a company who was promised a $100,000 investment from an investor in the United States. And you know they received a verbal promise and a promise for documentation. And I still haven't received it yet. Because normally what happens if you don't receive any legal documents is this, right? I'm definitely gonna invest in your company and I'm gonna invest $100,000. Um, I need to fly back to wherever, let's just say, you know, New York, and talk to my partner. And I'll, as soon as I talk to her, I'll get right back to you. And then the partner goes on vacation or, you know, takes one of those trips to the moon on Virgin Space or whatever. And no one ever gets back to you. So you can't count it. Anyway, if five of those companies have been actually funded, that's five out of 30. It's one over six. It's about 16%. And that falls right into their standard amount of companies that like succeed or get funded. Mm. I'm just not impressed. And if you go, I don't want to do this. But again, if you read further in one particular article about the companies in which they've invested. Um, so think about this. If you're a venture capitalist, what type of return are you trying to earn for your investors? You're not trying to make 8% a year like you make if you invest in an index mutual fund in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. So tell me, you want to take big swaths of the economy, right? You want to create like a global distribution system for bus ticketing or something that's like a $25 billion a year market. What you don't want to do really is create an outbound tour package company for people in Thailand whose socioeconomic um, standing is beyond going on tours, hmm. okay, to plan activities in companies like Japan and South Korea. This is not a big idea, and this is never going to be a multi-billion dollar company, so why are you investing in this company? Like, why? Okay, and then another company here who I'm loath to mention the name, but it's an online kind of pet-focused thing. Okay, and you have to understand, like, I know in Japan, pets are a big deal. Oh, yeah. They really are, like, whether it's a... And dogs are the biggest, probably, but, you know, people have cats, too. But I don't think I've ever seen as big a parade of dogs. I think dogs, in some cases, in Japan are more spoiled than children. Oh, yeah. Well, there's certainly right. more of them. For sure. Yeah, exactly. They're procreating faster. But also remember this. You know, a dog walks in the house just like a human. And remember, humans take their shoes off before they walk in the house. Dogs don't have shoes. <laughs> so if they walk around outside, they're walking directly on the ground. And there are only two ways to fix that in Japan. One is to put your dog in a carriage, which plenty of people do. It looks like the owner's lazy, but actually what they're trying to do is prevent their dog from making a mess in their house. And the second way is when your dog gets home to buy wipes and wipe their feet off before you let it go. So I'm not kidding. I've seen it. Okay? So here's a company that is trying to replicate all of those things, selling 
pet goods in this region. Okay, now I understand if you're gonna start a diaper site, right, and try to copy diapers.com, that makes sense to me. Diapers are actually light, even though they're bulky. You're gonna start, um, what's another good thing? Uh, oh, I just had an idea, but I can't remember. But pet stuff, right, is highly, because people are always gonna buy diapers, they're gonna have kids, right, particularly in growing economies. It's emotional. But, yeah, but it, it's it's also necessary. Pets mm. in the, in developing economies are not necessary. They're just not, and they're massive luxuries, and the market's really small. And also, like pet food, think about it. It's really heavy, mm. and it's really bulky. And most people, whether they're in Thailand or in Vietnam or in Jakarta or even in the Philippines, if they're wealthy enough to have a pet, they're probably also wealthy enough to have house help. Yeah, exactly. They don't care if their house help has to go out and wait an hour in line to buy dog food. So the thing is, when, saying, I, when I hear pets, though, Michael, it's, it's going to take me a good 10, 15, 20 years to come around to the idea of investing in a pet business just because of PetSmart. You know, I think of yeah. the, the legacy. We talked about Webvan last week. We did. PetSmart, just, it's there. It's in the background. It is pets.com. I mean, pets.com was the same thing in the United States, and that was 20 years ago, and that didn't work for a reason. And we know from, from some of the businesses that we've started, whether it's on the logistics side or the original pet business in Thailand called petloft.com, the pet business is hard, and the market's not ready for it yet. Yeah. But again, it's a big surprise is my sarcastic way of saying I'm not surprised that these guys have invested in this company because they got to invest in something. And this is where they're putting their money. And if you talk to them, because I know, because I've, I've pitched some things um, that they were listening to, and their answer is always, well, that's not big enough or it's not far enough along. And I just look at the stuff in which they do invest, and it's not a big surprise to me that they lose 86% of their money. Wow. Are these guys making money out of fees? They, don't they charge fees to their batches anyway, as far as I know? They must be making a bit of money out of that on the side. Well, they do in the United States. So the way it works in the U.S. is if you join one of their batches, they'll invest $125,000 right. into you and then take $25,000 back in fees. That's right, yeah. The tuition fees, right? It's tuition fees for all the stuff that they teach you. <laughs> right. Anyway, I mean, we can, we can spend an entire episode or two episodes talking about why their investment model. And people will say, you know, well, just like Vanguard did, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, they're mm. taking an index view on the entire market. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a maybe, right? And I'll tell you why. Because what Vanguard did was it forced the indices to be much more selective about what went into them. Right? They were they were actually like you had to meet certain criteria to be part of an index. But in this case, there is no index, so there's no criteria to get in and I just feel like the investment criteria for some of this stuff is limited and it's not the the market's not big enough in the mm. stuff in which they're investing and to me the reality is, and I'm going to end with this, that's not a big surprise. <laughs> you heard it there. He's bearish. I'm just bearish on this whole thing, right? And the other thing is, so when Sequoia Capital opens an office in India and they help them raise money and give them stuff, you know, give them support for their global system of Sequoia, and I have no acts with Sequoia. It's just a name that popped into my head, and I know they run a big investment business out of India. It's actually part of Sequoia. Globally, they all work for the same company, mm -hmm. but 500 startups is kind of like McDonald's. It's a, it's franchise. a franchise, right? Is it really? So how? Do, yeah. So franchise in what sense that Dave McClure 
is basically just taking his 5% or whatever. And how does it work? Yeah, I don't know exactly what the percentage is. I'm sure I can find out. But what it means is that they, just like McDonald's, right? They don't own, he doesn't own it. They own it. They rent the name. He comes out periodically. Um, <laughs> I was going to make a joke, but I can't. It's too funny. Um, but he comes out periodically and he kind of helps them raise money. But the reality is that it's not really owned by those people in California. It's owned by the people here. And they actually pay royalties back to him. And that's true with sure. the business in Malaysia and true with the business that um, Rainey is running in Japan. Um, they, they pay royalties back to, you know, some kind of fees back to the, to the mothership in, in California. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's not a big surprise to me. If you look at who's running those businesses, they have no prior investment experience. It's just funny to watch what they invest in. And like I said, that's a big surprise. It is a big surprise. You heard it here first. But, hey, let, let's just kind of end on a, a positive in, in case Dave is listening. <laughs> to our yeah, well, just, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, and then I'll say my thing, but go ahead. All right. I can understand what you're saying. I'm just kind of batting for the other side here. Go for it. I think, you know, what they're trying to do with 500 startups in earnest, I know, it, you know, the intention is good. I mean, the model, I don't know so much, but the intention of creating this micro fund where, you know, they're trying to get reach into the, the levels of investment that are a bigger fund couldn't achieve, right? I mean, sure. they're, they're coming in at different, they're much lower level than Y Combinator and so on. And they're, you know, unlike Y Combinator, they're going out, reaching out to the world and coming to places mm -hmm. like Thailand doing it, right? Yes. So all that's good. It's just the execution part that seems to be where it's lacking, right? But I think the intention yeah. is good. I mean, maybe just somebody come in and, and just executed better, that might work, right? Oh, I don't think the model necessarily is bad at all. But again, like you are who you associate with, right? And exactly. you need to pick real investment managers if you want someone to manage money. And investment management is not a trivial business. And, you know, <clears throat> in the same way that, like, you know, for a football team, you want to have a guy who can score goals because he's scored goals before. Yes. I don't know. Anyway, but I will say this. Dave's done an incredible job of, of building, you know, a global enterprise and, and the global infrastructure. And like you say, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that not go to waste. And the micro funds actually could have a play a really large part in seeding great companies. Mm. Um, and I think maybe if they got more direction from home, that that would be better. Um, and I don't disagree with with that distributed model. I just think the way it's being executed, as you said, is just is just poor, and, and it ends up making poor investments and giving poor returns to their investors. So, fair enough. Agreed. There you go. And, Anyway, I appreciate – look, I love talking to you. Um, I'll say this at the end. Um, it's great having these conversations. I very much look forward to talking to you again next week. And if you have any comments, right, it's hashtag Asia Tech Podcast. Look for me on Twitter at Michael Waits, just my name. And Graham, how are you out there? Where can people find you? Well, go to asiatechpodcast.com. I'm not on Twitter. That's a long story, but we can talk about that another time. Fair enough. I'll save that. Yeah, Asia Tech Podcast. Go com go and check it out get onto itunes subscribe there that's the best place to go and get hooked up to our weekly sound bites and insights into the asia tech ecosystem michael thank you so much this is thank Graham you very much brown and michael waits from tokyo and bangkok we'll see you next week okay take it easy man <laughs>